Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Fran Duffy. That's right. Another week, and after a few weeks off, we are back as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 132. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with Greg Cosell from NFL Films to talk about the talent evaluation process. Greg and I were just out at the scouting combine in Indianapolis, and we both are neck deep in scouting these prospects coming out for the 2018 NFL Draft. How do we come up with our evaluations, and what have we seen from the NFL this year that's helping to shape those final thoughts on these collegiate players? That's just one of the many questions to break down on this week's show. We follow that up with our scouting report, where I go through my notes on a local kid who really did an outstanding job at the Combine. That's Maryland wide receiver DJ Moore. I will go through my notes on the Philly native at the end of this week's show and explain why he's been a top three receiver for me ever since I watched him in early January. But before we get into all that, let's not waste any more time. Greg Cosell and I talk about some of the many things that are going through our minds while we're watching these college players. Let's get to that chat now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Please be joined once again by NFL Film Senior Producer Greg Cosell. Greg, it's been a few weeks since we've had you here on the podcast. Obviously, we took a couple weeks off here as we uh, kind of gathered our thoughts. and to celebrate and the world champion uh, Philadelphia Eagles. That's exactly right. And so here we are now. We're in Indianapolis at the Indianapolis Convention Center at the Scouting Combine. And uh, right now, the offensive linemen are working out. It's Friday morning. And really, we've all you know kind of gotten a taste of a lot of these prospects. You know, we haven't done the full evaluation yet. Uh, I know you are certainly uh, neck deep in evaluations <laughs> here on players. There's always more players to watch. I'm still catching up on a lot of these guys as well and trying to finalize my final evaluations on people. But uh, let's just start from the beginning of the process for you. What is it that you try and do when you try and prepare for an event like this and then ultimately for April's draft as you're watching these college prospects? Well, the number one thing for me is, is going to the tape because I think you have to see the player play football. And I watch with a lot of different things in mind. The number one goal, and it should be the number one goal, is to project and transition players to the National Football League. And because I don't work for a team and don't have a specific set of parameters, let's say for an offensive philosophy or a defensive philosophy, when I watch a particular player, I think of how he best can be deployed in specific schemes and systems in the National Football League. Because ultimately, that's what this process is about. You're trying to pick players who will be good NFL players and will help teams. So... When I watch players, I I think that first and foremost. Now, obviously, you have to watch players and get a feel for what their traits are because specific traits, we all have a sense of of traits that we feel work in the NFL. most important, yeah. That are most important. And you can go back to scouting parlance over the years and and things that people talk about positionally, and and everybody has critical factors. That's the term that's often used, critical factors for specific positions. And... Some can be reduced to simple things, and and others have many, many variables. When you talk about a receiver, for instance, when all's said and done, you can go through 20 different trades, but a receiver needs to be able to separate and catch the ball. And however he does those two things, and there's 10 different ways guys do that, 
But however he does those two things, if he can't do those two things with consistency, then he drops down in an evaluation. Sure. And I don't have to worry about what round guys get drafted. I don't I don't have to worry about making a list. I don't I don't worry about that. I love just the process of evaluating players and projecting and transitioning them to the National Football League. Yeah, you and I are definitely seeing eye-to-eye on that aspect. And let let me ask you this now. Uh, Obviously, you spend a large chunk of the year watching the NFL, all 32 teams and schemes and how the game kind of develops. Were there some things that came out of this past fall that maybe helped change the way that you're watching the college game now this spring, uh, trying to evaluate and transition players to the next level? Two things, I think, in particular, when when you asked me that. I think, and it might be incremental at this point, but I think there's been more this year in the NFL of a return to a little more quarterback under center. And I don't have numbers, so this is eyeball test. Yep. But just generally, and I've talked to a couple of coaches about this, and, and they agreed. We, we had this conversation. A uh, little more I-formation run game, a little more two tight ends. Yep. You know, uh, sort of kind of a return to... I guess what we thought of as sort of more traditional, conventional football. And the league and is always cyclical. This has gone on for years and years. It, it becomes very, very cyclical, and everybody just assumed that, hey, now the game's a spread game. But it, it, there were more and more teams this year that I noticed that lined up, put the quarterback under center, and tried to run the football. And again, I'm not saying that's all they did, but it just seemed like I, I felt like I saw a little more of that. Well, you're trying to make everybody uncomfortable. If everybody else is zigging, you want to zag. And that's right. kind of how the league has been uh, over the course. And it's funny you say that because uh, I talked yesterday to an offensive lineman, Will Richardson from NC State, and uh, along those lines, we were talking, and I said, what was your biggest test this year? And he said, Honestly, it wasn't one player per se, and he did mention Josh Sweat from Florida State, right, being right. the guy that was most difficult for him, but it wasn't necessarily Josh Sweat. It was that he lined up as a 4-I tech, and in the ACC, we don't see a lot of those uh, those tighter fronts. You know, We don't right. see a lot of three-man fronts, and so right. that was just something I wasn't used to. I was a little bit out of my comfort zone, and it took me a little bit more to get used to it. So to your point, as everybody else is getting used to playing three, four spread, uh, spread sets, now you're going to see teams try to, to bunch everybody in, bring everybody in tight, and try and run the ball. And that's just kind of the goes to the point of zigging instead of zigging while everybody else is zagging. Yeah, and, and I think we would all agree that in the NFL, look, it's thrown out as gospel that, oh, you've got to throw the ball. It's a passing league. You know, and that's all well and good, but the reality is you still have to run the ball. And there are many ways to run the ball. I mean, we've talked all year about the Eagles yeah. and how multiple their run game was, different concepts, uh, and had they did it out of different personnel, different formations, but they did it under center a lot. I mean, running the ball is important, and there's many different ways to do that. So, so with that, that, well, I guess with that in mind, how do you see that kind of manifesting itself in terms of the player evaluation and uh, you know how the valuation of players in the draft? And that's a great and question like because there is so much spread in college. Obviously, right? Uh, you know, you mentioned talking to Will Richardson, the offensive lineman. Um, and there's a lot of offensive linemen in college football who've never been in a three-point stance in right. their lives yep. because of where they've grown up, where they play in college. And it be, it's becoming a position, when you talk to evaluators, that's becoming more and more difficult to evaluate because in the NFL they're going to have to put their hand on the ground. They're going to have to drive block, base block, power block, work in tandem with, with a lineman next to them, yep. things they don't do in college. Um, so it, it's... It definitely, for me, I really enjoy watching 
let's say, teams like Iowa, Michigan State, Stanford, San Diego State, and I know there's, there's other teams I just can't think of offhand, you may know. So, you know, teams that line up with a quarterback under center and an eye back. Sure. So what, what that helps you with an evaluation, not only does it help you if you're watching, let's say, an eye back, but it helps watching offensive linemen, and it helps watching defenders that they're playing against. Yes. Because let's say you're watching a linebacker. In the NFL, look, do you have to be a big take-on guy and be able to toss away offensive linemen? No. But you have to be able to work in the, the box. Blocks. You yeah. have to yeah. be able to work in the box. There's different sure. ways to do that. Some guys can do it by being physical. Yep. Some guys are slithery, you know, and they can sort of – defeat a block without losing their gap integrity by not necessarily taking it on, but they have sort of that ability to kind of slither around it. Yep. We've seen a lot of guys like that. I asked, uh, I asked Ken Flagel, our linebackers coach, last summer. I said, what's the, what's the number one thing that's most difficult for linebackers coming from college to the NFL that it, you find it hardest to try, try and teach them right. early in their career? And he said, it's without question getting them used to facing two back sets. Without question. And, and so, you know, he said that we kind of lucked out because we played the Buffalo Bills last preseason, and they were a team that used some two backs. So he right, was able right. to take guys like Nate Gary and some of their other young linebackers and get some game reps, against, some live reps against a fullback uh, because they just don't see it. And that's why, honestly, when I, when I began my study of uh, Tremaine, uh, Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker from Virginia Tech, one of the first games I watched was Boston College because I know offensively. And I watched that game because you, you mentioned it to yeah, me. Yeah, because I, I know. There's off, another team. You're exactly, right. Exactly. Offensively. They like to play heavy personnel. They're going to play 21. They're going to play 12. They're going to play 22. So you're going to get a sense of how is this guy going to react when he's got a fullback in front of him, when they're a heavier set and they're going to try and run right at him. Yeah, and, and certainly it, it becomes you know division-dependent you know, as well. I mean, hey, look, if you're in the AFC South and you're going to play Jacksonville twice a year, you know, we'll see what Tennessee does offensively now with a new coordinator. But, you know, certain divisions demand that you be able to play teams that line up with the quarterback under center and eye back and run, you know, whether it's power, inside zone, you know, whatever those kinds of runs sure. that demand that linebackers not just be rangy players. They're right. going to have to make plays inside the box. And as we said, there's many ways to do that. You don't necessarily just have to be a guy, you know, everybody says, oh, they can't take on blocks. You don't have to be a physical power player, but you have to be effective within that confined box area. You have to defeat the block. You have to defeat the block. You have to find a way With, to win. Yeah. Without losing your gap. Exactly. Right. Um, so let, let me take you to the second. There was one other point, though. If, yeah, if I could no, just go make. for it. Take it. The other point I was going to make is you asked me other things. Yes. And and this is my new venting thing this this offseason oh, now. Oh, good. Okay. We talked about it at, at, you know, at, dinner at the time. combine yep. at, at dinner. Yep. And it's this whole left tackle, right tackle thing. Yes. And for years and years, it's presented as gospel that, you know, left tackle is the dancing bear and right tackle is the grinder. Well, the league defensively has changed so much now. There's so many big-time pass rushers who rush from the left side of the defense. There's so many more detailed, nuanced defensive schemes where they bring their best pass rushers to the left side, you know, not just lining them up there, but they can bring people over. Yep. That, to me, this delineation between left tackle and right tackle does not have anywhere near the meaning it used to have and may not even mean anything at all. You know, I mentioned divisions. If you play in the AFC West, sure. and you got, you know, the Eagles played the AFC West this year, and we know they have a very good right tackle on Lane Johnson. But if you play in the AFC West, here are the guys who block, who rush from the left side, Fran. Khalil Mack, Von Miller, Justin Houston, and Joey Bosa. Yep. 
you know, your right tackle can't be a big stiff. No. He's uh, got to be able to pass protect. And just looking at the rest of the Eagles' schedule, from, you know, the guys that you face from that side, you saw Demarcus Lawrence come off that side. There you side. go. Uh, you know, you saw, obviously you mentioned Von Miller, but then you go to Washington, Ryan Kerrigan comes off yep. that side. Julius Peppers comes off that side. Jason Pierre-Paul comes off that exactly. side. Exactly. So, you know, you have to be able to pass. It's not like you can't uh, pass protect so, you know, on the right side. So, you know, to me, this automatic s- sort of, you know, statement where you just say it, without thinking that, oh, he's not a left tackle, he's a right tackle. Yep. I don't think that holds water anymore. Yeah, I think it really is going to come down to all these guys, the, the comfort level they've got coming from a right, from playing from the right side and playing from the left side. Obviously, you want a guy that's got that versatility, but uh, some players may have only played on the left side. Uh, I talked with Wyatt Teller, the, the offensive line for Virginia Tech. He said the biggest adjustment he's had since the season ended has been getting used to taking snaps not at right guard and going over to right. left guard. He had to do it at the senior ball, and he's done it a lot in workouts. It's a transition period. I remember talking with Evan Mathis about the same thing when he, when he was in Philadelphia. That's not an easy – it's easier for a guy to go from, let's say, right guard to right tackle and back and forth than it is for – Stay on the same side, to, you mean. To yes, stay on the same yes, side yes. as opposed to trying to flip yes. sides because now you're doing everything opposite. Yep. Uh, so, no, that's a, that's a very valid point. I 1,000% agree. Um, one thing that I think is, is interesting, and it's just something that I've been watching, especially with this secondary group, and I know you're, you're you know, still trying to dive into that group, but I guess philosophically – when you look at teams now, and we know that it's a sub-package league, and we've talked about that from and what it means from a front seven standpoint, you know, the, the sub-package rushers off the edge and inside, uh, what it means for linebackers. But in, at sec, in the secondary, both at safety and corner, I think it's very interesting, especially looking at what the Eagles have, both long-term and short-term in the secondary right now, is how these players are used. You know, you see a player like a, a Rashawn Golden from Tennessee who is a 6'1", 205-pound player, Played in the slot his entire career. That's where that's, he was a slot corner at 6'1", 205. Is this guy a corner at the next level? What is he going to play in base? You, and I know you haven't got, but I'm saying, like, those are the kinds of things when you try and find roles for a player. That's another great question. Yeah. Because in the league now, you could almost argue that sub-package is almost base because teams on average, and every team is a little different percentage, obviously, but teams on average will play in their sub-package, meaning five defensive backs or six defensive backs on more than 70% of the snaps. Yep. So you just mentioned the kid from Tennessee who I've not had a chance to watch, but I've heard a lot of good things about him just being in Indianapolis for a couple of days. And so what is the value now of a slot corner? Right. You know, yeah. in years past, slot corner, to me in some ways, in some ways, and this might be extreme, but in some ways slot corner was like – middle reliever in baseball years ago. In other words, a guy who wasn't good enough to, to be a starter and wasn't good enough to be a closer, he was a middle reliever. Right. Okay? A slot corner, I think, for years was kind of like a, I don't want to say a throwaway or a filler position, but I don't think teams or organizations saw it as, oh, my God, we better go out and get a slot corner. Right. I wonder now if you have to start thinking that way. If you're going to be in a defense where you're playing a slot corner on over 70% of your snaps, that to me is a clearly defined position. And it's not just a coverage position. And by the way, it's a tough coverage position because the receiver has a two-way go. But it's also a position because you could be in that defense on first and 10 a lot in the NFL now. That player needs to be able to defend the run. And a lot of teams use the slot as a blitzer. Mike Hilton in Pittsburgh blitzed so much this year. You know, slot corner is a position that demands a specific set of traits. And uh, that's one 
a, a conversation that I want to have more of with coaches about their view of slot corner and its value because they play a lot of snaps. Well, that's why I think, and Eagles fans will remember, you know, you go back to 2011, and I hate, obviously we're coming off the Super Bowl, we're going to talk about some dark days, but you go back to 2011 when uh, the team signed uh, Namdi Asamoah, they traded for Dominic Rodgers Cromartie, they already had Asante Samuel, so DRC spent most of his time in the slot. He had never played in the slot before. Right. And, he, so and you just a, assume that a guy can go in the slot and play in the slot. Can't happen. And yeah. that's why yeah. you, it's not like it's not just as easy as, oh, yeah, we'll just take the first corner that we see and we're going to go right, right, in the right. slot. It's such a, a defined role with a very requ- uh, skill set that is very specific. Uh, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see how the Eagles do handle that if Patrick Robinson does leave in free agency. Do they feel that they have someone on the roster right now that could make that slide inside? It Could it be a Jalen Mills? Right. You know, do they think Razul Douglas has that Who's, ability? Who did that in his career in college. Yes. So he does have experience doing exactly. that. Exactly. Right. You know, can Ronald Darby do it? You know, can Sidney Jones not, do it? Ronald Darby's not really done that. Right. He didn't do that at Florida State. No. And so that's why it's going to be interesting to see if they decide that that's a route that they want to go. Or do you look into the draft and how early in the draft do you try to address that? And I think that's why, you know, a lot of people – kind of you know, scoff at the fact that a lot of mock drafts still have a corner going to the Eagles, and the, the popular one seems to be Dante Jackson from LSU. So what, the kid's played in the slot. And so right. if he's got slot experience and you feel like he's the best player, I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world. Not that I think it's definitely going to happen, but I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world because you need someone with experience in that role. I mean, the larger question, the macro question, is the value of the slot corner. Yes. And, and – Look how important Patrick Robinson was this year. Yeah. He had a really, really good season. Right. You know, and I think we would both agree on that. Yeah. And he, I thought he played exceptionally well, and he was a critical piece of the Eagles' defense this year. And I don't know their specific number with how, how often they played out of sub-packages, but I would bet it's right around 70%. Yeah. And when you so, – and not on, even on top of that, Minka Fitzpatrick is a guy who uh, is going to probably be a top-five pick in this draft. Spent most of the majority of his career in now, the slot. Now, let me ask you a question. That's, yeah. a gr- that's a phenomenal point. Let's say you're a team, and we all, we all understand that Minka Fitzpatrick, and I haven't gotten to him yet, and I know you have, and I'm sure I'll like the, you know. Yeah. I think he's a pretty clean player right, sure. from what I've heard. Yep. So, he, you know, I'm going to like him on tape. But let's say you absolutely believe as a team that his best position is slot corner in the NFL. Right. That, that you say, hey, this guy could be the best slot corner in the game. Is he the fourth pick in the draft? Are you drafting a slot? I would argue yes. I would argue yes, but too. I bet there would be some people who would say no, yeah. some old school people. Yeah, and, and people are saying that a lot conversely about the receivers in this draft. Calvin Ridley. Right. Uh, about uh, DJ Moore, the kid from Maryland, and some of these other receivers. Uh, Christian Kirk from Texas A&M uh, is a slot receiver. So are you going to draft a slot receiver in the first round? Well, We've seen that there's been a lot of slot receivers that have been very, very productive and key pieces for teams offensively. We've also seen teams with the multiplicity now of formations that a guy may be a quote-unquote slot receiver by position, but he's not just lining up in the slot. Yeah, and that's why I think it's – to me, I think the whole the whole talk of sub packages and it's it's not an abstract black and white thing. And and I think that that's what uh, a lot of people will look at and say, like, oh, it's a sub package league now, which is – Valid. It's true. It's That's very valid. true. But there still are. First of all, there are w- so many different variations of sub package. We saw that with the Eagles in the, this year in yeah. terms of not just up front, but on the back end. And you know, the, you look at the big nickel, the their dime, their regular nickel. You look up front. They've got their speed package. They've got a heavier nickel package. I mean, that's. 
there are so many different roles you can find. And that's just with the Eagles. You look at New right. England and all the well, different ways they use their personnel. It's 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 fascinating. To I watch think the me. point you're making, and and this is another thing that sort of <laughs> sticks in my craw a little bit. <laughs> this is my venting uh, yes. podcast. Is these platitudinous comments that people like you, you were just hitting on that to some degree, and one which we've talked about, I've talked about, had a chance to talk about with. You know, the Bill Polians of the world, the Lewis Riddicks of the world, is now the idea in the NFL, well, don't take a back in the first round. Right. You know, people throw stuff out that really has no meaning. Just because a guy got taken in the third or fourth round and turned into a good player, the point is you're looking for really good players. If you believe a guy's a game changer, you know, what, you're not going to draft Saquon Barkley in the first round because of some abstract belief that you don't take a back in the first round? Are the Jacksonville Jaguars in the, in the AFC title if they don't have Leonard Fournette last absolutely year? Absolutely not. And were the Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs if they didn't have Ezekiel no, Elliott the year before? Absolutely I mean, that's, not. Right. I mean, that's... Yeah. So, saying, so just then throwing out, well, the Chiefs drafted Kareem Hunt in the third round, right. that doesn't mean anything... There's always going to be those situations. The Redskins also drafted Samaj P. Ryan in the in the fourth round, and it, like there's always right. guys. Of course, there's of course. The point is, if you evaluate a player coming out to be a game changer as a back, yep, then he's a first round pick. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that goes across the board, and that's really, honestly, for me, one of the big things that I've been trying to focus on for myself during this process this year is trying to kind of quantify how I feel about a player in the grand scheme. You know, right. Because you all, there's always players that you watch, and, you, and we say this all the time to each other. I watched a guy, and I really liked him, but he's a certain kind of player. You know, so I watch him. wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. No, no. Hey, I really, and that's a, to me, that's the thing with a guy like Rashawn Golden. I know you haven't gotten to him yet, but I watch Rashawn Golden, and I really like the player, but I don't think that he's a, a, the kind of you know, quote-unquote slot player that you're going to be playing against Emmanuel Sanders and Jamison Crowder right. and, the, and those types and, of players. And that Sterling then factors Shepard. into his projection. Exactly. Because you might love the player, yep. and I, my sense is you like him, I, you I like like him. him on I film. Yep. But if you don't believe he can match up to certain kinds of slot players, then the question becomes, do you try to move him outside and right. can he play outside? Because at 6'1", that's great size to play on the outside if he's capable of it. Right. Because as – the one thing you can't have is if he's your slot guy, but you don't feel he's a good matchup against 50% of the slot receivers in the league, then right. that's a problem. Like Corey Graham's been in the league for 10-plus years, Yeah, right? He's had a, has done a really nice he's job. He's had a terrific career. I think, he could be, I think Rashawn Golden could be a, a, ty- a Corey Graham type of player. Well, if that's the kind of player you think he ultimately is, yeah. even though those players are valuable to, to some extent, then he's not a first, first or second, or second round, round pick. Probably not. Right. But I really, and that's, I like think, I think back to like Davion Smith last year, the running back from Michigan. Like, I like well, Davion liked, Smith. Yeah. yeah. Did I think he was a first round pick? No, but I, I liked Davion Smith. Right. And so I taught you, there's like, that's the thing where I'm trying to do is to try and quantify, like, I that's really like this player. That's where the projection in the transition comes in. Is this guy, what, what, what is, is this guy at the right. next level? What is, is he? he? A, is he a game changing type of player? Is he a solid starter? Is he a backup? Is he a role player? In a sense, 95, 98% of the players in this draft are going to be quote-unquote role players in the NFL. And then, and then you get used. into team and scheme. Yes. Maybe Devian Smith could be a great backup for Leonard Fournette because, right. you know, the style of offense they run, that if they want to give Fournette, you know, a rest on particular possessions, a guy like Smith could come in and get, you know, six or seven carries over the course of a game and be that guy. Right, You know, sure. he becomes specific to a team in a scheme. And then you look at a player, you know, 
I'm trying to think of a player that I know you've watched. So who, are, who are some of the best slot receivers, I guess, that you feel like you've watched so well, far? Have you watched, like, uh, Dante Pettis from Washington? I have not yet. I've seen Kirk, who Kirk, I think sure, could probably Kirk, move yep. around, although he's probably ideally a slot, but I think he can move around. So if Kirk goes to New England? He'd play all over, I think. And if he, But if he goes to, say, uh, Tampa Bay? Then he might just play in the slot. It's probably a little bit different, and his yeah. usage is different. His his, right. his production is going to be right. different. Um, it's to me that's the most fascinating part of this whole process is the proje- me too. projection. And part that's of why it. when I watch guys, and in my transition section on my sh- on my sheet, my you know my template where I, I type my notes when I watch guys, my transition section is usually pretty lengthy because I'm trying to deal with it from many perspectives because it's I'm not just working with a team yeah you know how how he'd fit with a given team I try to see how a guy would work you know it's like Calvin Ridley Calvin Ridley to me I love the player a part of me would say he's 190 pounds and then there's another part of me that says yeah but he's really a good route runner and he gets open so even though he's 190 pounds and he might not be ideal on the outside if he can get open on the outside and I think he can yeah then He's an he can line player. up on the outside. <laughs> Let me ask you this, because you mentioned Calvin Ridley, and this will be the last topic we kind of hit on, and we'll go back and forth on this for a couple minutes. Calvin Ridley is going to be a 23-year-old rookie. Does that bother you at all compared no. to, say, if, if, if a player is 23, 24 as a rookie compared to a guy that's like 20 or 21? Does that change the evaluation for well, you moving forward? Well, here's the way I would say I don't know the answer to this for sure, okay. but yep. I'm going to throw something out. Yes, let's hash it out. As you look back over history – and there'll always be examples of, of both sides. But when it comes to wide receivers in the NFL, what is normally their their time frame? I mean, Usually sure, two, you can look years. at certain guys yeah. who've played 15 years. Yep. But if you can get seven or eight really terrific seasons out of Ridley, even nine or ten, you know, he's 23. So let's say he can play at least 33. Yep. Isn't that... Wouldn't that be a good draft choice? And if you're a coach or a GM, you're not thinking 10 years from now. No. You're thinking, I need to win in the next two or three, or I'm not going to have it. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Calvin Ridley because I had a phenomenal conversation with Bill Polian about backs. And Bill Polian has done this study, and backs on average are five- or six-year players in the NFL as far as playing at their highest level. Okay. So they're really almost one-contract players. Right. Yeah, if you can get a second contract out of him and they can play through that at a reasonable level, then that that's the that's exception. Yeah, sure. So, you know, just talking about age, if there's a back who's 23, that doesn't matter because more than likely he's only going to play six, seven years anyway. So when you look at a player like a Tremaine Edmonds who is 19, 19 and there's there's holes in his game. Obviously, there are, there, are, there are some things he's that he does. He's clearly, at are, this point, a better athlete than he is a football player, but he's 19 years old. Right. So how do you factor that in? When you watch him, and does, does his age come into the picture at all for you well, when you're trying to project Now you have to get to know the kid because here's what you have of to course. get to know. Yes. Because now he has to be taught a lot of football. Yep. So you have to be able, which you and I won't be doing, sitting down with the kid, getting a sense of how he sees the game, getting a sense of how he assimilates information, how he practically applies what he learns in the classroom to the football field, how he's able to then take that to game day where the speed is at its highest level. Then you have to really know the kid. But as an abstraction, 
you'd be thrilled that he's 19 because you feel like he's a moldable piece of clay. And when you look at just the purely athletic traits, which are clearly higher level, you think, I can make this kid into a really fine player. I think a lot of people will look at age and say, oh, well, he's going to get better now. That's not, well, that's I mean, not automatic. That's not automatic. That's not right. automatic. I mean, there's plenty of 19-year-olds I can pluck out of college right now, and they're not right. going to turn into NFL players. That's I mean, not just automatic. Because, just because he's young doesn't mean he's going right. to turn into a right. good player. Greg, uh, we could probably keep going here and keep talking. Well, is we'll just, just do it again, Yeah, Fred. we'll just do it again at some point. I uh, appreciate the time here, as always, on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. We will talk to you when we talk to you. All right. Great stuff from Greg, and you can follow him like I do on Twitter, at Greg Cosell, and while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. That's where I post all of the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce here at PhiladelphiaEagles.com, and you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on social media. That is one way to support the show, but the other is to go on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and give us a rating and even leave us a comment. I wanted to give a shout-out to Gorka Park, who commented on our Apple Podcast page saying how much they enjoyed the podcast and how they listen each and every week. Thank you. And again, if you get the time, just go on and rate the show wherever you listen. It's the best way to kind of support this program, keep us going, uh, and let us know how we are doing each and every week. All right, let's keep this show going. I told you that we would break down a wide receiver from Maryland, DJ Moore, that really has impressed me throughout the process. Let's get to that now in our scouting report. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the scouting report. Three, two. All right, so DJ Moore, six foot even, 210 pounds at the Combine. A Philadelphia native, like I mentioned, he went to Imhotep Charter High School, which has put out a lot of really intriguing collegiate prospects over the last few years, especially this past year for the Terps, first team all-conference, and was the Big Ten wide receiver of the year. So was very productive, a three-year starter for Walt Bell in that shotgun spread scheme, lining up at both X and Z as well as in the slot. So you got that position versatility there with DJ Moore, lined up even at the backfield at times as well, and took carries. And he's a well-built kid. I mean, he's six foot, but he's 210 pounds. So he's got that below average height, but he's got a muscular frame. And as soon as you turn the tape on, you could see he's got some juice. You know, he's an impressive athlete with great feet. He can change gears in an instant and displays really easy change of direction. He looks fluid in and out of breaks. I was impressed with his balance from snap to whistle as well. He can beat press with his feet, his go-to move off the line, his little hand swipe to beat the corner early in the down, and he eats up cushion very quickly to get on top of corners. Even when he false steps, he's able to get out of his his stance in a hurry. So I was really impressed by some of the juice he showed early in the down. He's got the vertical speed to make plays down the field. He can fight through contact mid-route. That's where that body type really comes on, comes into play. He can stay on track even when the corner tries to get hands on him. He doesn't consistently do it, but he flashes the ability to sink his hips at the top of the route and create quality separation. He sells double moves very, very well. He'll lull defenders to sleep and switch gears to uh, break away in space. I really like the way that he's able to create separation, displays good body control and awareness along the side Line. He can adjust to the ball mid-flight, plays it well in all areas of the field, and I love that he's got a my-ball mentality going up and fighting for it in the air. His play strength shows up again at the catch point where he can sustain catches through contact. He's got strong hands, can snatch the ball away from his frame, and made some great one-handed grabs on film. He caught it very well live in Indianapolis. I was impressed watching him live on Saturday morning. He's not going to be viewed as a weapon in contested situations, but he will go up and fight for it, used on screens and jets to get the ball in his hands quickly, and for good reason. He's one of the best yards after catch receivers in this class. He's physical with the ball in his hands and displayed quality contact balance. So 
You're talking about a player that I think is almost you know the, the total package, but obviously not perfect. You know he's a bit sloppy with his releases against off coverage, tends to false step, and that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. He will round off his breaks at times. Needs to be a little bit more consistent as a route runner. I mentioned how he's got the he'll flash the ability to sink his hips and create separation, but wasn't consistent with it with the technique side of things as a route runner. At times he'll push off at the top of the route when he does not need to, doesn't always run through his routes if he's a little bit later in the progression. So there are some things to work out there. Displays strong hands, but he will body catch at times, let balls into his frame. I'd like to see him get a little bit better as a blocker. He does just enough to get in the way, but doesn't seem to really thrive in that part of playing the position. So I'd like to see him get a little bit better there. But I, you know, watching DJ Moore, do I think he's going to be a top five, top ten receiver in the NFL? I'm not sure about that, but he knows what he's doing as a route runner. He's smooth with and without the ball in his hands. He knows how to get open. Since he's not overly big, and I, you know, it's not like he ran four three. I think most people will kind of view him as more of a possession type of receiver, but I do think he's going to have some game-breaking ability. I think he fits in well as a reliable piece of a successful NFL passing game. And when you watch him, I think to me he's a prototypical Z receiver, a guy that can be moved around the formation and win in a lot of different ways. You can win with this kid as one of your top receivers. So great, coast, the great stuff from Greg Cosell and all of you out there listening, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, and, of course, on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles mobile app. Thank you. And, again, one more time, take a few seconds, go rate the show, leave us a comment, leave a question on there as well. This is the time of year where we can really dive deep in some of your questions that you leave on, on those platforms. So all that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast for everybody here at the Novacare Complex. I'm Fran Duffy. We will talk to you next week.